Well, please have that passage open in front of you in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 19. And uh, as I've said, as we come back to this Gospel, we now come to the teaching of the Lord Jesus on this subject of marriage and divorce. And really, it is a subject that is so relevant to the times that we are living in. And friends, sadly, there are few who have been untouched by the agony of broken relationships and divorce. Maybe that's something that you've experienced personally. Maybe it's been in the family, or maybe amongst friends, those that we know. Something that I've experienced in my own family. And some of you, no doubt this morning, have been deeply hurt by such things. Maybe you still carry very deep wounds. But friends, you need to know that the Lord is able to bind up the brokenhearted. And he's able to forgive the sinner. And in an unfaithful age, we are so privileged and blessed to be able to come to a faithful God. And so as we consider this whole matter, hopefully it will be done with sensitivity and clarity, but ultimately faithfulness to what God's word says. Now, there are over 100,000 divorces in the UK every year. And at the beginning of April this year, no-fault divorce legislation came into place to make that even easier. But, friend, beyond all those statistics are those broken homes and broken lives of men and women and children, and it is just heartbreaking. And so it's a, a real issue, and it doesn't show any signs of changing. And it's clear that as we come to the Word of God, God's definition of marriage as given in His Word is unchanging. It stands. And for all the attempts of governments and pressure groups, whoever they are and whoever they may want to be, can try and redefine marriage to fit their aims. Marriage in its truest sense... The creation ordinance cannot change. God created marriage. He defines marriage. Now, we know that our society has seeked to attack marriage in that sense and also sought to change the parameters of what marriage looks like. And over time, this agenda has slowly but surely caused terrible damage to the meaningfulness of what family is. And so the moral commitment to family has been eroded. And the idea and reality of family has begun to disintegrate so there's no longer that cohesive unit. And it's also true that the concept of biblical marriage is no longer valued in society. And it's been replaced by a, a new order of, of immorality which becomes more and more twisted and really depraved in the light of the Word of God. And then you add into that, you have the so-called Christian church rejecting and manipulating and emasculating the biblical statements about marriage and divorce in order to try and appease this sinful and broken world. And so really we are in a mess and we need the clarity of the word of God. And friends, we must not shape ourselves after the demands of sinful society which ever demands more and more concessions. We must look to the word of God. And on this matter this morning we can either listen to the world and to all that he wants to say to us or we listen to the word. 
We either go to the world's views and the world's agenda or we go to the word of God. We either go with the, the flow of what is happening in the world system or we stay faithful to what God requires and what God has laid down. And the question is, both for me and for you, where do you stand? Where do you stand this morning? And the faithful declaration of the truth in love and in grace and in compassion and yet clarity is vital not only for now, but also for the future generations. And we mustn't waver. We must be willing to submit our lives and our church to his authority, to his word. But then the question comes, what does the Bible actually teach? And there seems to be so much confusion about this, but often the problem is not necessarily with the Bible being unclear, but when people bring their views to Scripture rather than allowing Scripture to shape their views. And so there are those who say, well, divorce is never permissible because they see the problem of divorce and they want to stop it. So no divorce ever for any reason, no remarriage ever. And that sounds good and it would solve a lot of problems. But that's not quite what we find in Scripture. And we cannot set ourselves above Scripture. And then there are those who look at the world and they see the problem and they want to love people and accept people and their intention seems to be right, but their approach then is to lower the standard and to cut out those challenging parts of the Word of God, to remove any pressure or judgment and so to permit any course of action, you know, as long as people are trying their best and, you know, the Lord will forgive anyway. But friends, we have to be those who go to the Word and what the Lord says. Marriage is defined by God, it is a covenant under God, and marriage is designed to demonstrate to the world Christ's covenant with his people, a depiction of Christ's love for his church. And that is also something that we must ever bear in mind. And so as we come to this passage, we must see that the Lord Jesus deals with this matter in a particular context. And it's important that we know that. So let's just set the scene firstly. Verses 1 to 2. You know, it's tempting, isn't it, when we come to a passage like this, just to jump over those opening verses and just get right into the conflict. But it's so important to see the significance of what is being said. Nothing in Scripture is without purpose. And these opening verses, they mark a major transition in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. You see, it's the end of his Galilean ministry. Since Matthew 4, the majority of Christ's preaching and teaching and healing have been taking place in Galilee. The light had come, but men still loved the darkness, and now the light was going to go somewhere else. And so for the last few months of his ministry and those times, he had been focusing on preparing and training the disciples for the mission that they would face. And so now Jesus turns from Galilee to go south because ultimately he is going to go to Jerusalem and to the cross. And so it says he departed from Galilee. And I just think what a tragedy that the people in that area had been so blessed with the presence of the Son of God, with the truth of God, and now he was departing. And it was dreadful that he was rejected by his own and they even tried to kill the Savior in his own town. And so now the time has come for that ministry to end and he moves on to the next place. And then there's a, a very interesting phrase. You see where it says, when Jesus had finished these sayings. 
And so it is linked in with what has gone before in Matthew 18. And so the Lord Jesus had just finished a a whole section on teaching of the, the childlikeness of the believer and forgiveness. And it's interesting that each time this phrase appears in the Gospel of Matthew, it concludes a major section in his teaching. So in Matthew 5 to 7, you've got that amazing teaching of the Lord Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, and it ends in Matthew 7, 28, and it says, And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings. So it's an end of a, a block of teaching. And then in Matthew 10, you've got this amazing teaching about discipleship. And then the next chapter begins, Matthew 11, when Jesus finished commanding, when he finished those sayings. Then Matthew 13, you've got the great discourse on the parables of the kingdom. How does it end? Matthew 13, 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, these sayings. And that's what we find here at the beginning of Matthew 19, and then also at the end of the teaching of the Lord Jesus on the Mount of Olives in Matthew 24 to 26. So every time it concluded a very significant part of his ministry. And then we ask the question, well, where did he go? If he is leaving Galilee, where does he go? Well, it says he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Now, basically, the Jordan River effectively divided the north and south. And so, from the more rural north, the Lord Jesus goes south and eventually to Jerusalem. But he doesn't go straight down. First, he goes to the eastern side before crossing the Jordan again by Jericho and making his final journey into Jerusalem. And by taking that route, Jesus goes into an area across the Jordan that the Jews themselves called the Beyond. So he goes to this place called the Beyond. And this area is called Perea. And so Matthew 19 and 20 record his Perean ministry, the Beyond area, east of the Jordan. And it was a a very populated area, and it was under the control of a man called Herod Antipas. Now, that is incredibly important to the whole matter that is before us this morning. He was the man who beheaded John the Baptist. Now, many Jews took the path that Jesus did if they were going south because it would avoid going through the land of the Samaritans because the Jews thought they were a, a defiled and a dangerous people. And also it was a time that was close to Passover, which meant that many pilgrims would have been heading down to Jerusalem as well. So there are great, great crowds with the Lord Jesus. So many, many people, many with him, many to hear his teaching. And that's what we find in verse 2. Great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. It's interesting, it's the same when he began his Galilean ministry. The healings were the demonstration that he was Messiah. They were showing his messianic credentials. They were showing his power, his compassion, that he was the promised deliverer. And there would have been large crowds, and the Lord Jesus would have taught them the word of God, proclaimed the truth, and affirmed that by showing his amazing power. Friends, know it's staggering that even though he's now on the journey to the cross, even though he has set his face to the cross to go and lay down his life, he still has people on his heart. And he's teaching them the truth, how to enter the kingdom, showing that he's the Messiah. 
And friend, as we said all the way through this gospel, as we go through, you are being confronted with that same reality. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is Savior. The question is, will you believe? Will you trust him? The salvation that he brings is the only way that sinners like you and me can be delivered from the condemnation of sin and the wrath of God and be reconciled, brought together with a holy God. And that is what we see being declared time and time and time again. Jesus is who he says he is. Do you believe him? Do you trust him? Is he your savior? He is the only hope that we have in this world and the next. And so this is taking place as he, he goes through this final phase of Matthew's gospel, this final declaration and demonstration of the king, all going towards the cross, the great climax of his saving work. And throughout, he is teaching his disciples, preparing them for what is to come. So many different factors at play. But then, of course, you've got those who hate him and those who want to ruin him and destroy him and be rid of him. And that's what we see in verse 3. And we see this confrontation by his enemies. Look at what it says. The Pharisees also came to him testing him. You know, they were never far away. They were always plotting, always seeking to ruin him and harm him and discredit him and kill him. Why? Because the life and the teaching of the Lord Jesus, it exposed them. It showed them for what they really were. It exposed their hypocrisy and the emptiness of their hearts and their religion and their sinfulness. Oh, they hated him for that. And they were desperate to damage his popularity with the people. They were desperate to manufacture a way in which they could kill him. And so this next move, even this question, is designed to cause Jesus trouble. You know, it's not just a, an innocent question that they throw out. It's not just a, a haphazard thing. They had studied, they had planned, they had calculated, and they believed that this question could cause his downfall. And it's a clever question, and it's a sinister question. And he asks, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? You know, similar questions on relationships and morality are used today to try and do believers damage and to cause difficulty to discredit them and dismiss them. Um, we've got to be so wise, just like our Savior. And you say, well, why did that question have such potential for damage? Well, it could discredit him. You see, divorce in particular was a very divisive and volatile issue amongst the Jews. And it was also incredibly common. And at this time, women were treated as if they had no rights at all in this area of divorce. And so the Pharisees, they were at the very heart of the issue, not just in what they taught, because they themselves were constantly and continuously divorcing their wives. Remember, the Lord Jesus had highlighted that in the Sermon on the Mount. And so it's no surprise then to explain that the overwhelming majority of the Pharisees, they were teaching that you could divorce your wife for any reason. And it was very popular with many of the people, particularly those who wanted a divorce. And it was a way of accommodating sin and carrying favor with the people. 
and the prevailing rabbinic teaching at the time, uh, it had emerged, and it was said, well, you can divorce your wife for any reason. So if she's a bad cook, serves you up a meal that you don't like, you could divorce her. If she let her hair down, they said you could divorce her. If she said something unkind about your parents, you could divorce her. If you found someone that you liked the look of better, you could divorce her, whatever the issue. The popular teaching of the Pharisees was, if you want to divorce your wife, do it. And they knew that Jesus didn't teach this. And they'd faced this issue with him before, as I said, Matthew 5, he called out their adultery, including their pursuit of divorce without cause. He had confronted them, and no doubt those ripples had gone out. Jesus did not teach what the Pharisees taught about divorce, and he was firm on the matter. And it would also seem that the plan of the Pharisees was to provoke Jesus into making some strong statement on divorce which would then alienate the people and condemn people who had already been impacted by this. And so they're trying to make him say something that would devastate his popularity amongst the people, make him appear intolerant and narrow and not committed to the teaching of the rabbis. So trying to discredit his authority. And they also want him dead. And you say, well, how does this question help with that? Well, let me tell you. They hated him so much for the way his perfection and holiness and truth confronted their spiritual bankruptcy and error, they want him gone. How does this question help to do it? Well, in Matthew 14, maybe you remember, we saw how John the Baptist had been imprisoned in Machaerus, which was a fortress prison where? In Perea. And Herod Antipas, the ruler of that area, had thrown John into prison because John had confronted his adultery and immorality. And Herod Antipas, the ruler of Perea, he had seduced his brother's wife, Herodias, stole her to himself and married her. It was also incest because Herodias was a blood relative. And God does not recognize adulterous unions like that. And the Bible makes that clear because in Matthew 14, 3, we find this. Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. That is such an important detail. Because in God's sight, Herodias was still married to Philip. And so into this comes John the Baptist, God's faithful servant, who says, it is not lawful what you have done. It is not lawful for you to have her what happens? John is thrown into prison for confronting sin with the truth of God. And eventually it will cost John his life. And you say, well, okay, how does that link in with Matthew 19? Well, not only in the subject, but the Pharisees may have thought, well, if it is known that Jesus takes the same line as John... If word get back to, to Herod Antipas, you know, it might mean that Jesus is going to be beheaded too. And so they want to bring Jesus to publicly pronounce that the reigning monarch is an adulterer, and so that would invite death. And so, friends, I want you to see, it's not just a haphazard question. It's part of their evil scheming and plotting to ruin and destroy the Lord Jesus. There is a sinister motive behind it. Now, verses 4 to 6, and with this we draw it together for this morning. How does he respond? 
How does the Son of God respond? Well, it is a stunning response. And it is so wonderfully wise and profound and clear, and he unpicks all of their scheming and their plotting and their loaded question. What does he say? Well, look at the text. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh, therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. The Lord steps above their schemes, all of their customs and their traditions, and he goes back to the beginning. And he goes back to God's intention for marriage. And effectively, he says, ultimately, your argument is with God and with his word. That's the foundation. And Jesus says, you've got to get back to the scriptures. You've got to get back to the word. Friends, so often that is the case when we speak to people about the gospel. Their problem is not with us per se, it's with the word of God. And that's where we need to engage. And he, he comes with such authority and instantly he exposes these men who are meant to be students of the Bible. They pride themselves on knowing scripture and being recognized for their knowledge. And he says, haven't you read this? Haven't you ever read this, which you say that you know so well? And he reveals their ignorance. He takes down their boasted knowledge, their religious pride. They think they are so clever. The law keepers. And here the Son of God says, have you not read? Even from the beginning? Of course, they will have read it, but not a true reading. And Jesus goes back to Genesis and he identifies a number of things that dismantle their view that you can just divorce for any reason. And he sets forth God's word and God's divine intention and original design for marriage. So let's just break it up. What does he say? Well, he points them back, verse 4, to the created order. And he says, he who made them at the beginning made them male and female. And the Lord Jesus quotes from Genesis. And he asks the Pharisees, he says, Have you not considered God's creation? Do you not remember the design and the purpose of God from the beginning? God created one male and female. That's the emphasis. God created Adam, he created Eve. There was significant purpose in that. You know, there weren't just many created initially or some options and variations available. It was profound and yet simple. That was the divine intention and plan. One man, one woman. You know, in our current age where so much is said by the world on these matters and agendas being pursued, we have to keep coming back to the clarity of the Word of God. It is a really obvious point, but God made Adam and Eve to be together. There was nobody else. And so divorce was not the plan. It was not also recommended because loneliness and brokenness would follow. And if that had happened to Adam and Eve, everything else would have come to an abrupt end. And so the Lord underlines the foundations, the created order. One male, one female, no other variations. God's purpose, God's design, an indissoluble union. And as God did that, he set in motion how it is to be. And friends, God's created order has not changed. 
And that's the first thing that Jesus says. And then in verse 5, he speaks then about the deep bond of togetherness. When God brought one man and one woman together, they are united in a glorious way. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The Lord Jesus quotes Genesis 2, and uh, remaining in the very foundations of creation before the fall and before sin. And God's perfect divine order and plan, God's purpose was that man and woman come together in marriage, leaving their parents joined together to form that new family unit. You know, the word join can also be translated cleave. It means to have a bond which cannot be broken. It is the idea of being glued together, but not in a bad way of, you know, being stuck with someone in a negative sense. But you're joined together, glued together, man and wife. And the sense also brings out the idea of of being glued together because there has been a, a hard pursuit after something. The picture of two people joined together because they pursue hard after each other. As one explains, two hearts diligently and utterly committed to pursuing one another in love, joined together in indissoluble bond, glued in mind, glued in will, glued in spirit, glued in emotion. It is a beautiful picture. In terms of marriage, it speaks of two people before the Lord, totally consecrated, surrendered to each other, devoted to each other. And the imagery of devotion, the giving oneself over in marriage in every way, it's found in 1 Corinthians 7. It speaks of the abandonment of ourselves to each other. And then together they are set apart as a couple unto the Lord. The divine intention, this deep bond of togetherness, united, surrendered together before the Lord, pursuing him, pursuing one another. And then in verses 5 to 6, he emphasizes that togetherness when he speaks about one flesh. He adds this further reason why marriage should not be broken. One flesh. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. You cannot divide one. One is an indivisible number. The two can no longer be separated. They have become one person in the union of marriage. And that's true in terms of how God sees it. When these two come together in every way, in giving themselves to each other, not just spiritually, but emotionally, in the physical intimacy between them, God views them as one. United, one in mind, spirit, direction, emotion. And as a new family with the the blessing of offspring from that union, if the Lord pleases, God's purpose in marriage, they become one. And so when marriage is broken, you're left with broken hearts. And then verse 6, which is really the, the strongest argument, what God joins should not be separated. You know, God's intended purpose or desire for marriage, what God has joined together, let not man separate. This word separate is to put asunder. It is the word for divorce. It's used again in 1 Corinthians 7, meaning divorce. Therefore, what God puts together should not be separated. Now, there's some who try to argue that this means that it only applies when marriage is done acknowledging God. And so if we didn't marry as before God, you know, people have their ideas, don't they? then it doesn't apply and we're we're free to deal with our marriages as we want. That's missing the whole point of what Scripture is saying. It's not talking about how you see things or each other, but God's perspective 
and intention for marriage. God laying down his truth, a God-ordained institution. It is God who created, designed a man and woman to complement each other, coming together with that capacity to love each other and enjoy each other, to be fulfilled by each other and to help each other, to be the strength in each other's weaknesses, to be together in every way. And the miracle that man should so love a woman and a woman should so love a man that they can abandon themselves to each other in the fullness of that meaning relationship is a blessing of God. And even unbelieving people can enjoy something of the joy and the thrill and the meaningfulness of that loving union. So it's not an issue of whether you got married in the will of God. In answering this question, the Lord Jesus goes right back to the very beginning. God instituted marriage. And what he has joined together should not be separated. And so that's the original design. That's the original purpose. That's God's intention at creation. And the Pharisees, they come, they want to attack Jesus, to confront him, to discredit him, to bring about his death. And the Lord Jesus goes right back. And he says, God has set in place this created order for a man and woman to enter into a deep bond of being together, one flesh joined by him, and to rip that up is incredibly serious. And the consequences of this do not have the impact that the Pharisees hope for because, in fact, it has the opposite impact on the people who are listening. It doesn't discredit the Lord Jesus. It doesn't ruin him. In fact, he gains credibility and the Saviour declares again with authority that God has said this in his word. And that challenges the so-called religious elite in the world. He says, have you not read this? And that's the challenge for us this morning. Will we listen to the world or to the word? To the world's views, the world's agenda, or to the word of God? To go with the flow of what is happening or stay faithful to the word of God and what he requires? This is God's design and purpose. And the world wants to pressure us to fall in line with its own opinions and agendas, all the errors and the lies. We have to stay close to the word. Not just on this matter, but in every way. And I pray that he'd help us. Pray that he'd bless the marriages in this place that they would be to God's glory. But this is only the first part of his answer. And there's still more, and God willing, we'll look at that next time and what follows. But friends, as I finish, it reminds us that sin is ruined. And the perfection of God's order and his design has been twisted, it has been manipulated, it has been exploited. And that's why we need the gospel. That's why we need the Saviour. And many of you here this morning may have been affected by broken marriages, broken homes, unfaithfulness, troubles, the effects of sin. Some of you may have even been the cause of those things. But that is why the Gospel says there is forgiveness, there is comfort, there is hope, there is help. And that is found only in the Lord Jesus through his perfect life, through his death upon the cross. Christ has made the way in which we can be changed, we can be forgiven, and we can live for God's glory as he has purposed. So if you're here this morning, you think, well, you know, I've got a whole lot of mess going on. You need to come to the Lord Jesus, first and foremost. 
Maybe you have wounds that need healing. Maybe you have sin that needs forgiving. You need to come to Christ in repentance and faith and find that he is the faithful one and find that he is able to save to the uttermost all that call on his name. These things, they're challenging, but they're clear. And we pray that God would help us in them and seal them to our hearts. Amen.